I'm Pete Soderling, and welcome to the Zero Prime Podcast, where we explore the early stories of top startups via the experiences of their engineer founders. This week, I chat with Graham Thompson, co-founder and CEO of Privacy Dynamics, and Debo Ray, co-founder and CEO of DevZero. We discuss some of their thinking regarding best practices of how modern software teams operate, and some of the changes in developer tooling that we're currently seeing, especially in the areas of remote development environments and privacy-safe data. This is a bit of a new departure for us on Zero Prime. I don't think we've had two guests before, and the idea is to sort of beta test a new format of getting a couple of smart engineer founders on the show so we can have a three-week conversation about meaningful, important tech topic. And as we were thinking and sort of scheming this format, we realized how important this notion of modern software development process and how it affects everything across from the place your development environments are set up to how you do testing, to how you do CICD, to the data that these systems go against. And so I know that each of you have experience and particular opinions about this in the space. And so we wanted to put some bright people together to discuss this topic. And so I wanted to just set the stage for our listeners to let them know that that's what the plan is today. So, um, Debo, do you want to just tell us a little bit about DevZero and maybe a couple words about your background? I know you were a staff software engineer at Uber and you've been involved in some other startups, but maybe give us a, a quick intro to yourself and um, how you came to start DevZero. Yeah, so at DevZero, we are in the space of building cloud-hosted environments for software development, right? Our goal is to provide production-symmetric environments for engineers to do their daily work in. Ultimately, we want to be coding in a super high-context, high-fidelity environment. And given an option, like coding in production would be the best, but we try to get as close to that as possible. And in a high-fidelity environment like this, you don't have to wait as long for your code to build You can or your test to run, and you can just do things like end-to-end testing right there in the environment that you're in. I used to work as an infrastructure engineer at Uber before this. We were building and using a lot of tooling like DevZero internally, and now our goal is to just bring it to the rest of the market. Great. And Graham, maybe you'll do the same to give our listeners some background. Sure. I spent a number of years at Microsoft, kind of early Azure days, uh, helping some of our enterprise customers get over, bring their applications and data into the cloud. And one of the biggest challenges that, that we found was sort of concerns around customer data as, as we were leading up to GDPR. So I started working on this this idea around privacy dynamics and it's largely grown into a more of a developer tool to help them get production data into these lower environments that Debo's talking about in a safe way that doesn't contain PII, but really replicating what's happening in production as closely as possible. So we've, we've sort of found a way to quickly and precisely anonymize the data so you can use real data in those environments for testing and training and development. So when it comes to modern best practices around the SDLC, I mean, we've all been involved in software for a long time. And I'm wondering, what are your guys' thoughts on sort of how do best practices in the modern SDLC really affect and how are they represented in the choice of development environments that engineers are making these days? Yeah, yeah. So essentially, maybe before that, if I could just delve into what might be a few of the issues around some of this internal tooling that companies have, right? I think very few companies actually realize that developer productivity is a fundamental part of any tech company's core product. And this is purely from the aspect of efficiency first, right? We are engineers. We join companies to do good work. And then our internal tooling and processes are the bits that usually keep us from being able to go and deliver some of this software. And now, 
there are various productivity related tools in the market, right? And normally, whenever you actually introduce a new productivity tool, initially, this is, I guess, a little bit of Econ 101, like the J curve, like there is this initial trap that we fall into, like there's a small period of lack of productivity till you can actually start to see the benefits of this new productivity tool. And oftentimes, given lack of patience, we don't live past that and to ultimately then realize the benefits. So I think like ultimately, from a direction standpoint in industry today, we are at the very least starting to see people care more about some of these lower environments and having a sentiment of production symmetry there, be it both on the stateless side of applications that you run, as well as the stateful side. Now the question is, when we are building these environments for everyday use for our engineers, how can we remove all the friction in those processes? And so Graham, where do you think time is being wasted typically in sort of the development processes that you see and and your customers experience yeah it's it's interesting when we first got going we assumed that most of the use of our product would be on the data publishing side like sharing with third parties that's when you have the most concern about customer data being disclosed and what we found is engineering teams kept asking us about internal uses, first-party uses. So getting data out of production and into, you know, typically their lower environments with without the PII, because what was happening is as they're setting up these, you know, going through their and improving their software development tooling, they are, the next step is to get data into them. So they're not going to test a, a new application against production data, but you need a snapshot or a, a replica of that data to give you a, a representative sample of how that software is going to operate and how it's going to work. I mean, so what would happen was they would take then the next several days or sometimes even weeks we've heard getting access to production data to make a copy of it, to clean it up, and then clean it up enough where they're not going to get in trouble with, with PII, but not so much that they can't get a, a representative test done. That change, and, and you see a lot of synthetic data tools now fighting the same problem, trying to go from sort of no data to testable data. But what we found is that if, if you do a nice job sort of automating that process of, of anonymizing the data and you can maintain a replica of it, you really save time on the back end of getting your developer environment set up. So that's one of the reasons why we're so excited about these, these sort of ephemeral environments that Debo and, and several others have, have been working on so hard is that it really starts to set the tone for the right way to set up these environments in a, in a safe manner that the CISO is not going to freak out about. And it strikes me that in this whole shift left, this is sort of going down the data road a little bit more. It strikes me that in this whole shift left world that everyone is sort of embracing and and appreciating these days, do DBAs exist anymore? Because when I was a software engineer 20 plus years ago, there was this person called a database administrator. And I'm, I'm not sure if this role or this title exists anymore in sort of the modern software engineering team or tech company. I think it's... We're seeing a lot more platform engineering investment, and I think that's kind of taking on the DBA role and then other things. And they're sort of managing both, at least from you know what we've seen. And I don't live entirely in that space all the time, but we've definitely seen this sort of platform engineering role take that on. And then, of course, an engineers themselves probably needing to have sort of knowledge and be more responsible for perhaps setting up the data in their own test environments, et cetera, which probably brings us back to the problems and the challenges that you were mentioning, Graham, where developers do need to be working on, you know, reasonably distributed or 
production-like data, but making it actual production data obviously is a huge issue in terms of security and compliance and governance and, and all kinds of other things. Yeah, well, certainly as the compliance and regulation get mature in the United States and, and globally, one of the terms that we're seeing a lot more now in the new CPRA law in California, it's been around in HIPAA for a long time, GDPR is adopting this, uh, but data minimization is the general term. What that means is only having access to PII when you need it and only those who need it have it. And so having internal tooling and you know you have data catalogs and data management tools that sort of track who has access to what data and what data contains PII. But that doesn't really help engineers who are trying to get started quickly, right? If they need access to it, they have to now like go sell the fact that they need access to it and they're negotiating with the security team to get access to it. It's really not efficient and really not something that engineers generally like to do. You know, they want to start getting productive on their their task. And so for us, if we can start to sort of manage these environments that don't contain PII, but have the information that they need for development teams and, and data teams to do the work that they're trying to do, now you remove that friction between engineering and security. And, and you're still complying with these sort of updated laws that are coming down the line and, and now active in several states and in countries. So it seems like speed to value or, or speed, you know, sort of um, startup, like reducing the startup cycles for a software engineer um, is critical in both these aspects. Devo, is that pace or that time to value sort of a big motivator towards people to move towards a more cloud-hosted development environment in your experience? Absolutely, Breed. So, see, ultimately, this boils down to us engineers just preferring API interfaces over human interactions, right? Taking your DB admin example, like that essentially some of those responsibilities fell on the DevOps person, but it was still a little bit more on the repetitive side, like I was going and provisioning environments or a new database somewhere, etc. Now, as this whole, uh, the terminology of platform engineering is starting to take off in the market, now people are thinking more along the lines of, okay, how can I have an internal developer platform for my team? wherein I don't have to get a Slack message or a Jira ticket anymore for a new environment. I've already talked to security, privacy, etc. These are the recipes of the templates for what environments at our company need to look like. And as an day-to-day -day engineer, I just click a button somewhere or run a CLI command somewhere and I have my environment, like no more talking to someone. Because yeah, and engineers fundamentally are pretty impatient people too, right? So I guess this fits in pretty well with that. So the compression of the J curve is one thing, you know, where there's sort of a clear value prop. Debo, have you seen the interest in remote development environments, Wax or Wayne, based on sort of the current, you know, shape of tech hiring? And obviously, we're in a little bit of a different place right now than we were even a year, year and a half ago in terms of the size of teams or hiring versus firing. Um, like there's sort of we're at a different place in the cycle. So I'm wondering how are teams sort of quantifying the biggest value that they get from these kinds of systems today, would you say? Yeah, if you just look at the scope of a remote dev environment, which is ultimately just moving the environment where I write code away from the local laptop to the cloud, when we were hiring a lot, we were seeing the constant onboarding pains every week as more and more engineers were joining our teams. So that's when people were starting to care about just the remote dev environment aspect a lot. 
but obviously over the last year we have seen hiring has essentially stopped and now there's been a lot of layoffs in different areas of the tech industry and now a lot of the teams that have also unfortunately gotten hit are the devops and the platform engineering teams so in the past when i could just go to bob and be like hey bob i need this environment now or i need a, a, a replica of this database bob's not there at the company anymore and now even that devops team it's significantly smaller and at this point in time as a result like in in the lower environments, the ones that are way closer to production, we are starting to see tech teams essentially care about those significantly more than just being able to code in a remote machine somewhere. And do you think this model of remote development environments in the cloud, do you think this is something that's right for every team and, and every project? Or how do you see the distribution of use cases where this makes most sense versus some that it might not make as much sense? See, Pete, if you think about it, every single other tool apart from the environment where we write code has moved to the cloud. Most of us don't even have Microsoft Word in our computers anymore. Everything's either Office 365 or a Google Doc. So this ultimately, the uh, space where we write code, that will move to the cloud. The problem is there's a lot of heterogeneity in all of our dev environments. So the main problem that we need to solve for is coming up with a solution that can accommodate all of the various engineers requirements and when that happens development will move to the cloud also i might push back on that just a little bit because i mean i, I understand that yes there's sort of this modern movement to the cloud just and we're somewhere along that continuum in most of our systems and and the cloud is still sort of newish thing that many teams will get benefits from moving to. But I also see how, especially you see this uh, this sort of feedback loop is compressed in, in terms of AI. You know, as, as soon as we sort of get all the AI in the cloud and OpenAI has this hosted model that's so amazing and we can throw strings of text at, it gets very expensive. And so all of a sudden, you know, the sort of the next wave of forward thinkers realizes, oh shit, like we have all the CPO on our devices or, you know, on the edge or um, other places that is sort of being un underutilized because we've, we've slowly been shifting and migrating everything to the cloud. So I'm wondering if there's going to be some sort of a full circle like realization where now we have all these very underutilized, but very powerful Mac M1 or M3 processors on our MacBooks. And is it time to start to think about using those again? So I guess I'm thinking a little bit longer term, and I'm wondering if you have any opinion on that. This is a fantastic point, Pete, because I think even if you think about the current state of the market, right, people are revisiting their cloud expenditures pretty extensively. Normally, we have gotten very attuned to the cloud being like, even as developers, and we saw this uh, in my past company at Uber, like if you give a developer access to, let's say, the AWS console, we'll go and click buttons. We'll spin up resources. We'll never turn them off. Like, you can't even pay, a, uh, pay money to an engineer to go and get them to turn off AWS resources. So those bits, like even when we use the cloud, it needs to be used thoughtfully. The tooling provider needs to be able to understand when something is being used versus when it's not used. For what it's worth, what we are seeing at DevZero is in terms of the actual compute expenditures of some of these dev environments, obviously it depends on um, whether you're trying to do fancy GPU-based workloads, etc. It can be as low as a dollar a day or even lower in some cases. So the cloud, we can use the cloud in a cost-efficient manner, but the um, goal is giving the platform engineer enough tools to enable them to go and do that because it's very easy for us to go and spin up a very large gpu machine on aws and leave it running for a month and then you're yeah you're tearing your hair out for sure um graham what about for you like does does the cloud not cloud 
dichotomy like mean anything in particular in your business or is that not necessarily an important distinction for our development team for sure we started using a cloud development environment actually before debo got started but we started using it when we had five engineers and what we found is of those five half of one resource time was being spent setting up and tearing down environments for us and that largely went away when we started using octeto and so for us like the benefits to that were so big and it it actually was one of the big reasons why we got so excited about supporting and and sort of working together with the providers in the space is that we think that's where it's headed we really think there's so much benefit to both small teams and large teams you you get i was talking to someone that i think is uh, spotify has their own they like built their own environment and they're not the only enterprise to do that i think it's it's natural at this stage of of this market to see that but i think over time there, it won't make sense to build your own anymore. And you'll start to use one of the providers. Yeah, that's a fantastic point, Graham. Yeah. And where do you think infrastructure as code fits into this whole model? I think kind of what Debo was talking about in terms of optimizing, right? Like if you're doing all of this yourself, it's going to be really hard to optimize and keep it optimized over time. If you're starting to call on tools and be able to turn those on, turn those off, scale them up, scale them down as you need them. Now it's, it's a much more manageable process for these platform engineering teams. Like they, they're not writing code. They're sort of managing infrastructure as code, right? They can have a higher elevation view into what's going on and actually have a lot more power and, and how they're making adjustments. Um, Debo, anything else to add on that point? No, I think that efficiency point that um, Graham mentions, right? Because if you think about it, heterogeneity is the thing we try to fight the most. All of these local laptops that we have, managing all of it becomes very expensive. And ultimately, if we have to hire engineers to go and manage it, that's essentially a lot of money being spent towards doing things that are not fundamentally revenue generating for the businesses that we work at. I was gonna say, it ties back to your J-curve comment. Right, like the, it, it makes that J longer and wider. And there's a point here that something that I've learned and I was curious to get get your take on when what you've seen with Dev Zero is over the last six months, eight months, as as the market shifted a bit, we found when we're selling, customers are much more interested in sort of the minimum value that we can provide. There was an article recently, I forget who put it out, but it, it talks about minimum valuable product as opposed to minimum viable product. For those listeners that, that haven't heard it before, it basically means what's the minimum value a customer is willing to get to pay for your product. And I think it's a super important point for founders and early teams to think about, especially in this market, because that's what helps you find what I think is the beginning of product market fit. If you start to see that repeating itself, you can provide this little bit of value and customers start paying for it. That is your core that you need to build from. And what we've found is that it's all speed. It's all speed and efficiency related right now. It's that J curve getting tighter and people seeing value that your product provides faster, and then they can build from it. We made this huge mistake early, not a huge mistake, but it was a mistake early on where we kind of allowed people to over configure our tool and they would go in and it would take them, you know, a few days, maybe even a week to run their first project because they'd over configure things. It would try to over anonymize the data and it, it would always cause errors and issues. And our customer engineers started getting a lot of like pushback from them on, hey, your tool's not working. And what we found is we just cut down the number of configuration options that we provided. We did less and we did it better and we did it at a bigger scale. And now we're seeing people's first experience be a lot more positive. And then they're like, hey, what else can I do with it? But you've already gone past that minimum valuable product curve. 
So that's such a fantastic point. I have essentially boiled, boiled this down to the effort to value or effort to reward ratio. And because of the level of impatience that we all have, we want to put in the minimum amount of effort to get the maximum value as fast as possible. And like if you can give whoever is like exploring any product, right, the ability to see what the good happy paths are because they have all of the context of their problems in their head. They can then start to map their problems into whatever product that you're offering and then actually see value in their day-to-day -day work. And as like providers of various services, right? I think that initial onboarding, that user experience, being able to demonstrate the value that your product can offer, like that's when it's incredibly important. And for the very least for uh, someone like me who's a very back-end infrastructure engineer, that is definitely not the first thing that comes to mind yeah I, I always think about when you're working with a new customer they have limited time units that they can invest in new products and if you invest a time unit into something that you're not getting a return on you're probably not going to invest another time unit into that but if you if you get a high return on it you're going to start to take priority over the next tool too so like again get that little thing right first and and do it well and start carving away more time units yeah, and the fantastic thing is like you go and talk to your friends about it after that once you're convinced and it just feels magical at that point. Yeah, it, well, it feels like you're you're like stealing more time. Well, it's been great to hear your guys' thoughts on the future of SDLC and development environments, development tools, etc. I'm curious, just as a final closing question to each of you, which developer tool do you think sort of will exist in every developer stack going forward? Devo, would be curious to hear your thoughts first. I think it'll be something co-piloty, but not just to help me write little snippets of code, but something that has a much deeper understanding of my overall uh, systems capabilities and what functionalities are already present and help me integrate with that. So I see that paired with a lot of this platform engineering stuff being a big part of the future uh, SDLC. I was going to say Copilot as well, or DevZero. Uh, I, I really do think the direction for remote developer environments, even if they're deployed on local laptops or you know sort of managed in that way where uh, you can just sort of grab an image of that environment, getting efficiency around there, I think we'll look back five years from now and laugh at the days that were spent setting up environments. And obviously every stack, every developer stack needs a tool to anonymize and create privacy safe data in whatever environment they're using, I would guess. My hopes and dreams would be that that developers think first about like anonymized data first, right? Taking, can we try to use data that doesn't contain customer information, personal information, health information, whatever? Can we try first and the, to use that before we go to production and create a snapshot? Um, I think that's just a mindset shift a little bit that will take time. And honestly, we'll have to reduce the costs associated with using that. Not just the monetary costs, but the utility costs of, of using it as well. And that's that's the big focus around privacy precision is if we get better and better at anonymizing data and preserving privacy without sort of disrupting that utility, then I think it has to be that way because there's no way engineers will take a, a trade-off uh, if it's even even small trade-offs, I think, are, are a tough sell. Well, great, guys. It's really been awesome to have your experience and insights on the show. So just wanted to thank you for joining us and wish you the best of luck with the startups. Thanks, Pete. Thank you so much. 
Thanks for joining us for another episode of the Zero Prime Podcast. I hope you enjoyed my chat with Graham Thompson and Thibaut Ray. You can find more info on Privacy Dynamics at privacydynamics.com and DevZero at devzero.io. If you like hearing from engineer founders on the cutting edge of enterprise startups and developer tools, please leave us a review on your favorite podcast app and subscribe to the show. We'll see you next time.